Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, jeweler, founder, and owner of Adam Foster Fine Jewelry, Adam Foster. Hey, what you drinking? Okay, you guys know what this is. Uh, we're going to go in for another amazing conversation. I'm going to go out on a ledge and guarantee that this is going to be an incredible conversation, unlike any that I have had before on Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. You ever have one of those situations where you meet someone at a gathering, you have a, a just a general conversation about what you do, and you you strike up kind of like this commonality? Well, that's what happened when I met our guest today. Uh, Mr. Adam Foster uh, met him at a function. You know, one of my friends uh, asked me to come by. You guys remember Mr. Steven Burkhardt. Uh, he was season two, I believe. He asked me to come to an event. So, of course, when Stephen asked me to come, I, I got to go. And I, I go to the event. It's it's being held at, at a jeweler. And I'm like, okay, kind of interesting. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead and do this. Uh, never a bad place to be when you got to spend some extra time. So I go to the jeweler and, and um, you know, just kind of talking to some of the people there. And, you know, one of the cool people that I was talking to, I, you know, I asked him, well, what do you do? And, oh, well, I, I'm the jeweler who owns this place. So kind of a good friend to have, wouldn't you say? So with that, I'm going to introduce Mr. Adam Foster to Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. Adam, what's going on, man? How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Fantastic, man. Well, hey, you know, I had such a great time in our conversation. You know, I, I'm just so excited to continue that conversation here on Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. Uh, so I, I got a, I got a bunch of questions, as you as you may recall. I, I was full of questions when we met. And so I got a ton of questions for you today, too. But my first question, and uh, many people say that this is the most important question. Uh, so here, here we go. So what you drinking? I am drinking uh, one of my favorites, Lafroig. But this is the quarter cast, so it's uh, a double a double barrel they put it in, which I think is just another reason to sell you a, a second second bottle of whiskey. <laughs> so uh, yeah, with a little ice or with a little water. Oh my gosh, that sounds like the real thing, man. I, I have never, I have not gone that high on the whiskey scotch list. Oh my gosh, and you've got a cool little uh, decanter there. I was told by a, a very good scotch drinker that you have to drink the scotch with the appropriate water jug that comes from the distillery. So this is a Lafroig water jug to pour your water into your scotch. Oh, my gosh. See, that's a whole nother level. Yeah, they even ship water from the specific region over, which I'm not going there. My wife would probably kill me at that point. <laughs> Wow. Oh my God. See, now we're already getting an education. We haven't even gotten into the conversation yet. Okay. Great, great question. You know, I don't have a whole lot of people who ask me that question. Uh, you know, I, I've got something that um, uh, I've had before, 
I've had the small batch version. I've had the lower level version, kind of the entry level. And I see the the, the entry level version almost everywhere anymore. Old Elk. It just has, you know, it has an everyday name to it. But I saw one that uh, I thought was kind of interesting because the old elk normal, the everyday version has kind of a beige label to it. This is one that had a black label to it. So this is old elk four grains. It's 105.9 proof. And I've never had it before. As a matter of fact, I'm actually opening this on air. So we're going to actually crack the label here. You know, the the regular Old Elk, it seemed like a very good everyday get it done kind of a whiskey here. But I got expectations for this four grain just because of the presentation. So let's crack it up. Let's just wait. So this is your everyday. No, no, no. This is an upgrade <laughs> from my everyday. But let's pour some and just kind of see what. And uh, oh man, this 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 smells like this might work. And uh, let's give it just a little taste. Yeah, this 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 will get it done. This will get us over the finish line. So while I enjoy all four of these grains, <laughs> uh, share a little bit about your background because I'm going to go on record in saying that I've never met an actual jeweler before. And I don't know if this is something that you just, you know, in the ninth grade, you know, people say, uh, you know, I want to be a jeweler when I grow up, uh, or if this is something that you fall into, I, I would just love to finish hearing your story and then we can get into this conversation. Yeah. So I, um, I went to the school, of the art Institute of Chicago and trained as a goldsmith, metalsmith jeweler. Originally I went to the school to be a painting and drawing major. Uh, my roommate went on to be a great a great painter and I realized if he was gonna make it, I was not. So at the time I was working in the, the machine shop, the metal shop, the foundry, which incorporated the jewelry department. And I enjoyed that. I grown up in old houses, working on them the whole time. So getting dirty, getting your hands dirty, making things, fixing things was no big deal. I could do that. And I realized I really enjoyed the jewelry end of it because there was still a market in, in the world still. Not that there isn't for painting, but there's not that many fine painters needed in the world. And commercially, it's hard to make a living that way. So I got into the jewelry department and I realized I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was, in my mind, I thought it was pretty practical. I could leave college and maybe get a job in it. Uh, and I focused on that and I did a lot of other things there, but I focused on that primarily. And uh, the last year of college, I formed my company to have a, a jewelry sale of the things I was making. And then my intention was to terminate the the sole proprietor at that point and go work for somebody because I would just wanted a job. I just needed to pay for things. Hmm. And uh getting out of college and moving, I moved back to St. Louis because this is where I'm, my home is. I felt like I had more connections here. I realized that most of St. Louis, even if they do some jewelry work, they're really not making or designing things from scratch. It's more component parts that are assembled or uh, repairs or things like that. But there was, there's no real industry here. Uh, and that's when my father said, well, you paid all that money for school and you're just going to like give up on it. So I kept the LLC and I moved to South St. Louis in a tiny studio that a 
business professional who worked at Ross Perina, he had a studio in South City that he he painted, you know, just for fun. And other professors from WashU and SLU had studio space there. And I just needed a room to make things in. So I rented, I rented a room. It was 50 bucks a month is where I started. Uh, my parents loaned me the first two months rent because they knew I wasn't <laughs> going to make it. <laughs> and um, I had some equipment and I just worked for a couple women um, in town. I made them jewelry. I repaired jewelry for them. I was not making any great deal of money. And then 20 years later, fast forward, it's been growing some years better than other, depending on what the economy is doing. And this year we celebrated our 20th year. And uh, now we're carried in uh, Neiman Marcus, uh, Saxon Avenue. We do trunk shows at Bergdorf. And then we have our own studio and showroom here in St. Louis, which is where you were. And then we deal with independent jewelers throughout the country that they carry my work there in their, their store. Wow. I mean, that that's an incredible story. And, uh, you know, I want to get deeper into just what has to be a fascinating industry to be in. But you, you mentioned something in passing that uh, I've talked with a couple of people about, a couple of people who are native to St. Louis, namely uh, Mr. Dave Peacock. In his episode, we talked about how unique St. Louis is, because I, I am not native to St. Louis. We moved here uh, in 2006, and what I have found is that, this is the joke that I tell, no one seems to move to St. Louis. People usually move back to St. Louis. What is it about St. Louis that causes people who are native to never leave, or if they leave to go to school, they come back as soon as they possibly can? You know, when I went to school, I had no I had no real intention in returning to the city. I love Chicago. I love New York. I love big cities. I love all that. But then when the rubber hit the road and you've got to build something, you've got to look at, you know, all of your your nuts and how far can they go? So I thought, you know what, I've got some connections. I grew up there. You know, I spent years there. My parents were here. Not that they're in the jewelry industry, but maybe they knew somebody, you know, like all of those interlocking things. So when I when I came back, I thought, I don't know if I want to be here, but at least I can get my feet underneath me and build this thing. And then for a long time, I thought, you know, I, I'm not sure if I want to stay. But then as I started to travel for work and experience other cities and what people, whether they were of my level or much, much, much higher in business, I would hear their like woes and what they were dealing with. And I thought, I don't even have to deal with that in St. Louis. I mean, my store and studio here is over 4,000 square feet. I mean, that's a restaurant in most cities. Uh, So I wasn't interested in that. And then as I got to travel for work, I realized I get to enjoy all of these great places and experience them. And then I get to come back to St. Louis where I can get around, I can have interesting things, I can have green space for my kids to run around, I can, um, you know, just all those nuances that I do really enjoy. But I, I get to go out in the rest of the world and enjoy a lot of other places to kind of like satiate the, you know, I'm not stuck in the Midwest kind <laughs> of thing. But I I do think there's a lot of great people here. I think there's a lot more willingness to say, hey, I, I'm not in that same business, but maybe we could work together. Because I think in in the jewelry industry, a lot of people in this market, maybe like they don't work together too much. But outside of that, I think there's a lot of industries where like, I've got a connection with that company, I can help you. Or I know some people that you should know. And I just think it's a friendly Midwestern 
thing. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being friendly. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, uh, there, one of the concepts I learned really, really early, I think I must have still, still have been in my teens and I definitely stole this book from my dad. If you've listened to a few episodes, you may sense a theme that I, I stole a lot of books from, from my dad. Uh, but one of the books that I stole from him was Mark McCormick. And he wrote what they didn't teach me at Harvard Business School. And from that book, it said, all things being equal, friends buy from friends. All things being unequal, friends buy from friends. So I took from that, <laughs> it's important to make friends. And so that seems to be what you, what you leveraged a great deal, at least to, to launch your business. I think you have to make friends. I mean, my customers, which I call my collectors, a lot of them are friends. Some of them are really good friends. And this is what I do. And I, I hope that if someone were in need of something, they would come to me and ask whether it was for just some questions answered or ultimately, can you help me make this or find these things for this is what I would like to buy. I'd love to help people. But I also love to just tell people, if that's what you're interested in from that other company, at least know what you're buying. And then you make the decision. You're, I'm, not, I'm still going to feed you your friend if you walk into RDA and buy that. I think that's great. Wow. Fantastic. I mean, so really, although although you're obviously in the jewelry industry, it sounds like your real business is just connecting people and, and servicing whatever it is that they're looking to do. And then you use your jewelry to do as a, as a means to do that. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of times uh, in my industry, um, the idea that, oh, I own a jewelry store and people come to me to buy things. The difference in the company that I own and run is we design, we manufacture, and we source all of the things that we are making our jewelry out of and then giving and selling to people. We're not getting it from catalogs. We're not a middleman where they literally, we open the UPS box up and put it on the floor and sell it. So I think there's value there and it doesn't necessarily cost anymore. It's, you could ask me anything and I will tell you. And if I don't know, I will say, I'm not sure on that, but let me call the cutter across the country or the world and find out where that's mined at or what the question you had was. Mm. Oh my gosh. I love that. I mean, you know, and we're, we're getting into a point where, especially in the, in, in the newer generations, they have a tendency to really want to know what's going into their, their product. What, what's the craftsman? What's the ingredient? Where did this come from? Probably a lot more than, than certainly my, my generation. I just wanted the thing, right? I, I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention as to where this was coming from. I just wanted the thing, but you're right. I mean, it's, you know, today's generation, they want to know where did this come from? Who, who are the people that were involved in making this? And do I have a personal relationship with, you know, some of the people that there were in the manufacturing chain of, of, of this thing that I have. And, and you could, you could buy a piece of jewelry from me and never ask any questions and don't want any background information. That's totally fine. But I feel like it should always be there and it should not be an awkward questions that you're like, uh, does this come from like, you should just say it. I'm, I mean, that might be the Midwest in me where I'm just like, you can be nice and say, you know what, this does come from there. You need to know that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, hey, man, let me let me just cut right to the chase of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, because I think uh, you might be able to bring some uh, bring a, a craftsman's like approach to helping me answer this question. 
So got this podcast called Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. And in my mind, everything connects. I wasn't really sure how this might connect in other people's minds until I had a conversation with uh, Mr. Joe Cavalier, who was one of my original mentors. And he was on uh, season three, at the beginning of season three. And he said, Galen, the connection between whiskey, jazz, and leadership is you, right? Those are the three things that you like. And therefore, when people listen to this podcast, they get you. And so that was enough for me. But from your perspective, is there a connection between whiskey, jazz, and leadership? Why does this make sense if you believe that it does? I mean, I think it does when you put them together and you say, what's the commonality of those things? I think when you look at whiskey, whether it's American whiskey or Scotch whiskey, which we won't get into right now, but... um, (laughs) There, there's very few ingredients in that. I mean, whether it's what are your four grains in yours or three in mine, um, but there's, it's very much like there's pretty simple ingredients, but there's hundreds of variations of that thing. And I think from with scotch and whiskey, you, you look at that thing and it's surface level. It's, it's booze, brown booze, and it burns. So that's where they put the thing up. And then jazz, maybe people, and I think this way with a lot of music, if you're not into it, it's sort of like, yeah, whatever, I'm fine, whatever. But it's sort of surface value. You're not really listening to it. You're just hearing it. And then with leadership, you take it for granted. Like when it's bad, you know, but you may not be able to put your finger on it. And when it's good, you can't really put your finger on it anyway. You're just happy and maybe you just don't care. So I think when you get down past the surface level of all three of those things, and start to analyze what you're drinking and the nuance of it and where the distillery was and what they're malting their barley with and the water they're using and you know all of those things to what the musician's doing he's not just going crazy up there or there's you know cadence and you know all these nuances to music to leadership it's not just letting people run crazy and be creative it's giving them sort of blinders so that they can be creative in one direction that ultimately maybe the people that own or running the company can say, this is the direction we need to march to, but you're creative. So I'm not going to tell you how you're going to march that way, but I'm going to help you not be schizophrenic and we got to get to the finish line here. Mm. So I think maybe that's kind of, I see that as how they're all common. Yeah. Now, is there is there a similarity between what you just described and the craft of what you do? Because it seems like that there. I mean, I hear similarities, but but you're you're, you're the craftsman. Tell me, are, are are there similarities to what you do? I think there are. I think there's that surface level. Oh, it's pretty and it's expensive, or I can afford this. I mean, that's kind of where people stop, which is fine. But I think there's more things to get down into it and realize. And that's why when you were at our studios, you could see the showroom side. And then if you wanted to, you can go back to the studio side where you can see things getting manufactured. A lot of times people don't realize that jewelry is time intensive, equipment intensive, skill intensive, and very dirty process to produce a really fine, small, shiny thing. And I think with good jewelry, you pick it up and you don't, maybe you can't put your finger on it, but you're like, I don't know why, but my wife, my partner, whoever, they, they pick this thing up and they always want to wear it. Well, there's a reason for that. Is it design? Is it the material? Is it the story? Is it 
why that person got it. Like there's something there. And someone that really is conscious of making objects, they're going to pay attention to all those things so that when we get done with it, it's special. I mean, it's special to me. I made it. I spent weeks of my life on it. And then it's special to you because you're giving it to somebody or you got it because it it signaled something that meant something to you. So we want to make sure that we capture all those things. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned just now, I, I, I believe has an incredible connection to whiskey, jazz and leadership for me. And that is the story. And for me, all three of those things, there's, there's story is such an important element of it to me with whiskey, there's a story behind every whiskey that I have. And I must have, I don't know, 70, 80 bottles, maybe they're all open. So I'm not a collector, right? Because they're all open. And, and uh, you know, if I hadn't gotten to it, if there happens to be one that's not open, then it just hasn't made the rotation and that bottle's time is coming. But there's a story behind each one. Um, jazz, when I listen to my favorites, there's a story there about when I first listened to it or the person that recommended it to me, or, or you know, maybe I, I, I read something about the artist and there's a, a story there for me that I identify that makes the music special to me. And then leadership, evermore, it's really not about telling people what to do. It's about inspiring them to step beyond constraints that they might have. And the vehicle that I find that is the, the, the easiest way to get people to step beyond constraints is the use of story. How much do you leverage story in the work that you do? I mean, it depends on like what we talk about story. Now, if we're the piece is finished, uh, you have to have a story behind everything you make, whether it's we spent time on it, even if we're making a small run of them and they're, they're multiples, there's still a story about how you came up with it and why you did and all of those things. Um, when we're manufacturing and trying to get an idea to be beyond a sample, which we can make anything, but is it viable to keep making it or to sell it? It's trying to inspire and I don't know if I'd even call it inspire. I call it just being part of the team. You're passionate about being part of the team. I call it drinking the Kool-Aid. Like you just are, you're, you're there. It's that blind faith that like, okay, I don't really think this is going to work, but we're going to go for it. You kind of have to do that because sometimes it doesn't work. And then we'll figure out, okay, why didn't that one process work? And then we keep working. I mean, we're manufacturing things that, I mean, a year ago, was an idea and we still have not brought it to market. Sometimes people would go, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? But ultimately when we get it to work, it becomes a basis for a new thing that we have. And we, we own all of that. We, we know that we can make this. And I think in the United States, there's still a lot of people making things, but there's not, there's not as many as there should be. Right. It's getting fewer, fewer and fewer. Yeah. One, one of the things that a lot of my, a lot of my listeners uh, might remember is that uh, I've got a real fondness for Kobe Bryant and not so much Kobe while he was playing, but the Kobe that we got to see after he retired and he started pulling back the, uh, the curtain on his work ethic and his approach to, uh, to getting better at the game. And one of the things that he said, I'm going to paraphrase, he says something similar to, Good players 
are good at their craft. They're good at their thing. Great players love the process of getting better. You know, good, good players, they're, they're good at their craft. They're good at their thing, but great players love the process of getting better. How do you react to that as it pertains to the industry that you're in? I mean, I think of that. That's, I don't even know if I consider that a saying that I, I mean, it's just ingrained in you. Like you just have to be humble and you have to keep getting better and better. Uh, and then there's those times when people are like, how did you get this good at it? And I don't think you think about that. I think you just think about, Hey, we got to that next notch. We need to keep going, notching up. I am not, I'm not interested in what anyone else is doing or what they're making or mm. anything. I'll pay attention, but ultimately it's us. I mean, we're playing our own game here and we are, we're doing our own thing. I mean, I hope everyone has success, but our heads are down and we're focused. And I think yeah. in, in in Missouri, like coming back to this, being from St. Louis and starting a company here, I mean, there's no one manufacturing jewelry in St. Louis. So as a result, we don't have a network of other, a lot of times other companies will kind of lean on each other and say, hey, can you make this part and we'll make this part and all that. We don't have that, which is honestly, I, I think it's totally fine. It can slow the process down, but it it makes you completely self-sufficient. I mean, we are an island. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, I, I love the fact that you've got this broad view of collaboration and you are clearly collaborating within your industry, but you're not necessarily collaborating to get the thing done, right? You're bringing a complete thing to the collaboration. And so many times I see people when they collaborate, when they don't know how to do something, right? And and they're collaborating from the standpoint of, can you show me how to do this, this, this thing that I've got to do? You seem to be bringing a complete thing. You're bringing a mastery and you're saying, let me leverage my mastery, combine that with your mastery, and let's come up with something totally different. I think that's great. But I also don't, I mean, if I'm collaborating with someone, I don't know if I would call it a collaboration if I need help. I just call you and say, you know, I need help. I need to know how to do this. Can you either help me learn that or can you connect me to somebody that I can just pay to have that tool made to help me do this? Um, I think that's in, in business. I hear that a lot when people are like, oh, maybe we could collaborate. And you're like, this is what I have. What do you have? Like, that's a true collaboration. It's two people coming together and I'm getting just as much as I'm giving. And I think if the other person doesn't have all that to give, I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's not a collaboration. You you just have to ask for, hey, can you help me get to this to point B? And then I could say, I don't have time right now, but maybe later I could actually help you do that. But let's not call this a collaboration. <laughs> right. I love that. I lo let's, let's call a thing a thing, right? Let's call it what it is. Because then everybody's happy with like the outcomes of it. I mean, if we call it a collaboration and... I'm going to, you You want me to give you advice about jazz. It's going to be, it's going to be bad for you. <laughs> and I'm just going to be struggling. <laughs> right. I love it. So love ultimately it. like you got to make those partnerships and just be truthful about this is what I'm looking for. I think intelligent people that come to two things together, they know ultimately what's going on, but just make it verbal. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. 
If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.